I can still remember the first time we sang our God is a healer. And I was at the back of the auditorium. It was one of the very first times we introduced that song. And Patricia Lynn was at the back, right where Jesse, Jessica Schraft is sitting. And uh, her hand just lifted up, just tears flowing down her face. Our God is healer. She has experienced ultimate healing. She's with the Lord today. I'm so excited about that. But what, what a great truth. Our God is awesome in power. None can compare. Amen? Over the past couple of weeks, we've been reminded of some important truths as they relate to God's sovereignty. And we have been reminded in the words uh, we read in John Piper's book, Desiring God, that God's pursuit of praise and our pursuit of pleasure in Him are one and the same pursuit. In other words, God is praised and glorified when we delight in Him, which overflows into our praising Him. And we cannot adequately praise someone in whom we don't delight. Boy, what a challenge. I've been reminded over the last, really, last month and a half that I can't control a whole lot of circumstances in life. I can't. I can't control what took place in Boston any more than you can. I can't control what happens with the weather. I can't control the day-to-day circumstances of life. I'd like to. I mean, I, I think we all would like to be able to control those things, but we can't. And I can live life without the joy of God in my heart and be worried about the stuff that takes place. Or I can say, God, I'm going to find my joy in you regardless of what happens around me. Amen? And that's what we have to do. And so we're learning as we're going through this study is that God delights in us when we find our delight in Him. And it should be this one in the same pursuit. And I like what John Piper states in his book. The stunning implication of this discovery is that all the, the, that all the omnipotent energy that drives the heart of God to pursue His own glory also drives Him to satisfy the hearts of those who seek their joy in Him. The very thing that can make us happiest is what God delights in with all His heart and with all His soul. In fact... As we get started here, I want to read just several passages of Scripture. And the first one I want to look at is just in Jeremiah chapter 32. I just want to quickly read these two verses. Verse 40 and 41 says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never turn away from doing good to them. And I will put fear of me in their hearts so they will never again turn away from me. I will take delight in them to do what is good for them. And with all my heart and mind, I will faithfully plant them in this land. I mean, the heart of God is to do, to delight in His people and to do good for them. Do we understand that? Is that God is not an omnipotent God just sitting up there with an almighty powerful thumb saying, go ahead, mess up. Just go ahead and mess up so I get, God is a loving, powerful God who delights in bringing joy to His children. But those who will truly seek Him and find their joy in Him, He says, that's what brings me joy. That's what brings me delight. I have this question. If God rejoices and delights in doing good to those who seek to find their delight in Him, why then do more Christians, not more Christians, truly seek to delight in Him all the more? I mean, if that's truly what God wants for us, and we believe that, then why don't more Christians seek to find delight in Him alone? I wonder at times, as David Platt has asked, I wonder if many people have been spiritually deceived. I wonder if a lot of quote-unquote professing Christians 
are truly seeking delight in areas other than God because they haven't been biblically converted. I want to just take a moment. Let's look to God in prayer as we continue in the message this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you this morning. We ask, God, that we might search our hearts this day. Lord, we know that there is nothing we can hide from you. Lord, you told us in your, in your word in the book of Hebrews that all things are naked and open before you. We couldn't hide from you if we wanted. Psalm 139 reminds us, dear Father, that no matter where we go on this earth, you see us. And God, we know that nothing is hidden from your eye. And we can come to church and we can shake hands and we can put a smile on our face, but God, you know our hearts. And you know whether or not we're truly finding our joy in you. You know whether or not we truly know you. And I pray, God, that we might be honest with ourselves this morning. As we look at the Word, as we look at the idea of behind finding our joy in you and the fact that many don't because they're not truly converted, God, I pray that you'd make that clear for many this morning. And Lord, for those of us who truly know you, who have been called by your mercy and your grace into a relationship with you, Lord, I pray that we would let our joy come out. But Lord, if there be one that's not here, or that's here today, Lord, that has not found that relationship with you, with you today, Lord, I pray that today would be that day. Lord, that your spirit would work in our hearts and draw us to yourself. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If God rejoices and delights in doing good to those who seek to find their delight in Him, why then do not more Christians truly seek to delight in Him all the more? I wonder if it is because many have been spiritually deceived. Matthew chapter 7, verse 14 teaches us something that maybe we don't like to consider. Enter through the narrow gate, for, gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many that go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. We don't like to think about the possibility that maybe across America, maybe within the walls of this building, that there are those who are part of the body of Christ who truly have never been publicly converted. We don't really want to think about that. We've been programmed to, uh, to, be, uh, to think in such a way that all you have to do is say a prayer and you can be saved. We started this study uh, last Thursday evening called Follow God. And I'm reminded of a couple of things that David Platt uh, shared with us during that Bible study. He came across some very recent research that made these claims. Four out of five Americans identify themselves as Christians. That's 80% of those that were polled identified themselves as Christians. Less than half of those who are taking place in that poll attend church regularly. Less than half. Less than half of those people believe the Bible to be true and accurate. Less than half claim to have a biblical worldview. In other words, stuff just happens, oh well. And the bottom line is, pollsters took it one step further by probing uh, into their claims. And many of those polled people claim, uh, polled claim to be quote-unquote born again. But yet, interesting thoughts here come out of this research. Many of these born-again people believe that their works can earn them a place in heaven. We know that's contrary to Scripture, but yet if I claim to know Jesus Christ, I ought to claim, be able to claim what 
that assurance of spending eternity in heaven. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, right? Not of any works that I can do, lest any man should boast. If I can earn enough enough works to earn merit to get me into heaven, then Christ died in vain. Many of these born-again people believe that Christians and Muslims serve the very same God. Number three, many of these born-again people believe that Jesus sinned. Well, that's just, that's just a great theory that maybe our Lord walked the earth, but to actually be sinless? Come on now. And yet it goes contrary to the very Word of God that He was without sin. Over and over, and yet many of these born-again people claim that they were, quote-unquote, marginally committed to Christ. I have to wonder, if we are only marginally committed to Christ, why be committed at all? I mean, if we can pick and choose what parts of Christianity that, that make sense and that, that seem like a good, reasonable idea to follow and to partake up in our, in our hearts and our lives, then why bother doing any of it at all? So you can't straddle the fence. You can't kind of one way in the world, you know, Monday through, Monday through Saturday and then come to, come to Christ on Sunday. The conclusion of the research was this. The beliefs and lifestyles of the quote-unquote born-again people were virtually indistinguishable from the world around them. That's sad. I mean, if part of our purpose for existence is to share Christ to the lost and dying world, and if there's nothing that distinguishes us from them, why would they want what we've got? Amen? There has to be something that separates us. And I think it really does stem from a relationship with Jesus Christ. To know Him. David Platt uses this illustration as a visual lesson of the impact of being truly converted. This is his illustration, but I thought it was good. Suppose you invited me to meet you at a specific restaurant for lunch. You notice at the agreed time that I haven't yet shown up. Soon I'm 15 minutes late, then 30 minutes late, and then 45 minutes late, and just about the time you decide to... Leave, I come running in, huffing out of breath. And I explained to you that I had a flat tire on the interstate, and on the way over I was changing it when all of a sudden I got hit by a Mack truck that was going 70 miles per hour. It hurt, but I picked myself back up, finished changing the tire, and drove over here. Instantly, you would know that I was either lying or deceived. Why? Because someone who gets hit by a Mack truck going 70 miles per hour would look quite a bit different after getting hit by that truck going 70 miles per hour. And I think we understand the point that David Platt was trying to make with this hypothetical story. When Jesus Christ comes into the life of a man, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New Creation. In other words, what I look like before I claim Christ versus after I claim Christ, there ought to be a difference. Amen? There ought to be some type of difference. Do we seek to delight in Jesus Christ above everything else? Do we seek to know Him and to find our joy in Him and Him alone? Can we identify with the Apostle Paul? In fact, take your Bibles and turn this morning to Philippians chapter 3. 
Philippians chapter 3, and as I tell you often, we're going to be jumping around a little bit this morning, but uh, Ben will put the, the references up there for you, so if I get going too fast, you can at least look up and see where I'm at. Philippians chapter 3, I want to begin reading verse 7. Here's what happened when the Apostle Paul got saved. His whole attitude changed. His mindset changed. His purpose for life changed. Here's what he says. But everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. Everything. He didn't say most things. He didn't say some things. He said everything that was a gain, I counted as nothing. Look at verse 8. More than that, I also considered everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of Him I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth, so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. He said, listen, after Jesus Christ got a hold of my life, everything changed. Nothing else mattered. And he goes on, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. He says, listen, everything's different now. Why? Because of the change that has come into my life. Because of who Jesus Christ is, there's a change well, I told you at the beginning of this sermon series, we're going to kind of base some things off of John Piper's book, Desiring God. And if you've not had the opportunity, as I said before, you can go to his website, you can download a PDF file of the entire book for free and read it. But I want to borrow several things from him this morning. Six things that we must realize. Number one, God created us for his glory. If you would take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 43. If most of this world, 80% of this world around us claims to know Christ, and even amongst believers, why don't we find this fact to be true among many believers? That Christ, or that God created us for His own glory. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 6 and 7 says this, I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone called by my name and created for what? My glory. I have formed him. Indeed, I have made him. Over and over, we've talked about these last several weeks, how God created us for his glory. And that's the only reason. That's the only purpose. In Revelation chapter 4, it says, Thou art worthy, O God, to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure, Thy will, we exist. The bottom line is, we are not here for ourselves. In fact, if we claim to know Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and following says this, that if we have Jesus, if we claim to know Christ, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in us, which we are of God, and we are not our own. We've been purchased by the blood of God, Son Jesus Christ. We're not here for our own purpose. We're not here for our own will. We're created for one reason, and that is to bring glory to God. And it is the duty of man, number two, to bring the glory that is due him. 
And that's why he says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether therefore you eat or drink or what? Whatsoever, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I used to jokingly say this verse when we'd play Rook. I used to be fiercely competitive at Rook. And I can remember oftentimes my wife being my partner, which is not a good thing. Anybody? Yeah, right. Every other area is okay. But if you know anything about the game of Rook, there's this phrase called shoot the moon, which means I am going to make an attempt to get every trick that's laid. And I would look at my wife, because we would have a sizable lead, and she'd say, shoot the moon. I'm like, are you nuts? You know why she does it? Because she feels bad that we have a lead. We don't want to destroy someone else that we're playing. So to even it up, she would say, shoot the moon, knowing that we would lose everything, and that it would level the score a little bit. Hello. That's not normal. And I would turn around and say, hey, if we're not playing to win, there ain't no sense in playing. God says, whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. You do your best. If we're not playing to win, I ain't playing. But I've learned that because if you get a sizable lead, that she'll destroy it. Whatsoever. How often do we do things half? Because it's enough to quote unquote get by. How often do we just give God leftovers? You know, it's amazing. In our culture, how we want things right here and now. Microwave Christianity. You know, I found from watching my wife over the years to really put on a spread, it takes time. And to peel the potatoes and to strip the carrots. And But why do all that if you can just throw a TV dinner in the oven, right? Ugh. But you know what? We do the same thing to God. We kind of just assume that when needs are presented, that someone else will take care of it. Well, after I get done with doing all the things that I have to do this week, after I take, get done doing all the responsibilities that I have a job with my job, and after after everything's done, if I got some leftover time, some leftover talent, some leftover treasure, then maybe I'll give to God. And God says, "Do everything to my glory." And we're Satisfied at doing half or 80%, less than our best. We give God leftovers. Number one, God created us for his glory. Number two, it is the duty of man to bring God the glory to him. Number three, our condition is desperate as we have failed to glorify God as we ought. How do I know that? In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, we're born that way. We can't change it. We can't wish it away, hope it away, think it away. We are born sinners. Isn't that right? Not a, not a one of us in this room can change the fact. We are born into this world as sinful, sinful beings. And we fall short of giving God the glory that is due Him. And not only that... In Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, it says this. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. When we think about that, we have a big problem. We have a desperate condition before God. 
that only He can fix. That only He can change. And number four, all of us are subject to the wrath of God. Romans 6 and verse 23 says, For the wages or the punishment of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The bottom line is, we are destined to hell. And can I say just for a moment, and we're going to talk about this more tonight, the bottom line is, hell is a very real place. I hope you understand that. I hope you believe that. It's not a figment of someone's imagination. It's not just a good idea that that somebody came up with to, to scare mankind. But hell is a real, literal place. And God's Word says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And the only other place that a person can go is either heaven or hell. There is no middle ground. God's Word makes that clear. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9 says this, For they themselves report what kind of reception we had from among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's what He wants of us. We're destined for hell, born apart from God. And He says, but there is a bridge. Isn't that awesome? Then number five, God in His great mercy, His great love, His grace, sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to save sinners by dying in their place on the cross. Take your Bibles and look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15. It says this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He says and I am the worst of them. He says, but I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus, might demonstrate His extraordinary patience as an example to those who believe in Him for eternal life. His great mercy, His great love, His grace, He sent His Son to die on a cross, to pay a debt He didn't owe because we had a price, a debt we could not pay. And in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, He says this, He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. See, every one of us were born across the line, so to speak. We've talked about that word trespass. It means across the line. We were born there on the wrong side. But Jesus Christ died on the cross so that we might have just be justified. And then number six, salvation belongs to those who repent and trust in God. Look at Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, and verse 19. 3.19. It says, Therefore repent and turn back, so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. There's a time to repent. And in Acts chapter 16, verse 31, another familiar verse, you've known it before. So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. So what is required? Because we are born underneath the wrath of God, repent and believe. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. You see, there's something that takes place in the life of a person who calls on Jesus Christ to be their Savior. They realize that I'm going this direction in life. 
Now I'm confronted with the truth of who Jesus Christ is, who God is, and what God did to draw us into relationship with Himself. We're going this direction, and I realize that this direction is wrong. Repent. And I put my past behind me. I change because I realize that God is confronting me with truth, and I no longer can live that way. And I begin to walk this way. There's repent. Why? Because I believe in Jesus Christ now. And what's it say there in Hebrews? I begin to obey Him, not my own will. I begin to follow Him, not myself. There has to be a change that takes place. And I wonder if we find more joy, find joy in Jesus Christ, not only as a professing Christian, but as one who has truly repented, called on Him in faith, putting their beliefs in Him, and be, obey Him. Because there's a change that takes place, right? See, I can't say, well, sorry I'm late. I got hit by a truck going 70 miles an hour. And come out looking the same. In the same way, I can't claim Christ and continue to live the same way. There's a difference that is obvious. And the question I have to wonder sometimes, is salvation guaranteed to everyone? Is it guaranteed to everyone? Well, Pastor, well, isn't that a question that just goes against my, you know, grates against what I've always been taught? Let's see what God's Word says. Maybe this will give some justification to the claims that many people make. The fact that they may know Jesus, but not really know Jesus. Look at John chapter 3. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 3. We're going to look at just five passages here. John chapter 3, verse 36. This is a familiar verse. I'm sure to many of us. It says, The Father loves the Son, and this is verse 35, and has given all things into His hands. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who refuses to believe in the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. So who gets to see eternal life? The one who believes. So what if I don't believe? The only other alternative is hell. A lake of fire for all eternity. And folks, that's something we don't like to think about, do we? I mean, the fact that we may have people who live right beside us, people that we may work with, relatives in our own family, who may refuse to believe. I wonder if that really grates upon us a little bit. That there's a truth and a reality of hell. So the one who does not believe will not see eternal life. Look over Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35. So summoning the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, this is the words of Jesus here, if anyone wants to be my follower, he must what? Deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. What's he saying here? If you're not willing to deny self, you cannot be my follower. Wasn't that a little harsh? I mean, isn't God calling us to commitment here? Isn't God saying, wait, it's not about you. It's all about me. And if I'm not willing to acknowledge that, if I'm not willing to put Christ first and myself lower than Him, I cannot be His follower. That requires all of us 
to really look internal and say, listen, am I willing to deny myself to follow Him? That's not easy. Because our flesh is thinking strong. Number three, Matthew chapter 10. And this is a tough one. Matthew chapter 10. In fact, I've had different folks tell me over the last year as we read through the book Radical, that can't mean what, that, that, that cannot mean what, what it says there. The words are black and white. The words don't lie. These are very harsh words, strong words. Matthew 10 verse 37 says this, The person who loves father or mother more than me, more than me, key words there, is not worthy of me. The person who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What's he saying here? We ought to love God supremely more than anyone or anything else in this world. I don't know about you, but that's hard. Because I love a lot of things. And so do you. We like what we like. And we love what we love. But can I honestly say I love God more? I love Jesus Christ more than these? But the person who loves father or mother or son or daughter more than me, he says, is not worthy of me. Look at Luke chapter 14. Look at verse 33. He says, In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not say goodbye to all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Wait a minute, Pastor. This is more, this is getting into more than I expected. More than I thought. More than I realized. Mm hmm. Because Jesus Christ says, you're all in or all out. What's it going to be? It can't be half and half. It's a life of commitment. Are we one? You know, God may never ask you to give up anything. You ever thought about that? He may not ask you to give up anything. In fact, in Romans 12, He doesn't say, hey, die for me. On the contrary, He says, be a living sacrifice for me. I don't want you to die for me. I want you to live for me. And He says, by the way, that's your reasonable form of worship. That's the least that we can do in light of what I've done for you, he says. But even though God may not ask you to give up everything, here's the question. Would you be willing to? Would you be willing to? Would you be willing to give up, if need be, to give Him full commitment? Let's look at one more. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. He says, If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him, Maranatha, that is, the Lord come. In other words, if I don't love the Lord. We've talked about love quite a bit in the last year or so. Love is a decision. It's not a feeling. I can remember some of the first times that Don and I stayed up with Jake as a little baby when he was sick. We realized uh, during one of his colds or flu spells or whatever you call it, when you laid him down, 
he would hack and have a hard time breathing. But when you held him upright, it seems like his chest would be clear enough and he could breathe good. So I remember for a couple nights, my wife and I took turns sleeping on the couch, sitting straight up, just holding him so he'd be straight up. Because he had a rough cold. You know, at that moment, feeling goes out the window. Because you're tired, you want to sleep, you want a good night's rest, but you're setting that aside because you made a decision to love that baby. See, love as a feeling dissipates. Love as a decision requires action. And it changes everything. And he says basically, in in a nutshell, if you don't love me, let you be accursed. Even so, Lord, come. I want, as we're putting these things together, if we don't have joy, and we don't find delight in God's because we haven't been truly biblically converted. You see, because what I've realized in my young years is that Following Jesus Christ is more than just saying a prayer. Quote-unquote, getting saved is more than just, Dear Jesus, come into my heart and save me. And then go on your merry way and do life as norm. So there's a lot more to it. The prayer to follow Jesus Christ and place my faith and trust in Him is a starting point to a relationship. We talked about this several months ago. Oftentimes, I can come into the church, I can bring my nice Bible, I can put a smile on my face and say, hey, how's it going? And boy, Pat answer, wonderful, great, praise the Lord, sing out in songs that I love to sing, and walk out and be the same hypocrite inside as I was on the outside. And I can look just like, I can act just like, I can talk just like a truly born-again believer and be polar opposite in my heart. There has to be a change. There has to be a dying to self. There has to be a commitment to the Lord to do what God expects me to do, to be what He expects me to be, to live how He expects me to live. And he uses this example of the wheat and the tares. Boy, when they're first seedlings, they look just like each other, right? But what happens over time, the wheat begins to be a little bit different than the tares. And notice how they grow side by side. (laughs) Right in our midst. Those that are truly following Jesus Christ and those that just look like they're following Christ. What's the difference? The heart. The obedience the repentance, the commitment. In time, the wheat will be distinguished from the tares. But I know this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And there's a joy that I have in following Jesus Christ. I can tell you, I'm human like all of you. You know that, right? You cut me, I bleed red like you. I'm just happy to be a pastor. You're not. Here's the thing that I found out in life. There are struggles no matter what you do in life. I don't care if you work as a police officer or a factory worker or at the shoe shop up the road or you pastor. There are struggles. 
And in the moment of difficulty, you say, man, I'd rather be doing this. Or I'd rather be doing that. I'd rather live here. Or I'd rather go live there. But the problem is, life is life. People are people. And everywhere you go, there are struggles. You can't avoid them. In fact, Jesus Christ says, if you're going to be in this world, you're going to have to experience the troubles of this world, right? You can't get around it. But I can tell you one thing that I've never wavered on. I don't want to be anything else other than a child of God. That's a certain in my life. I don't know about you, but there's joy there. I don't have to understand everything. Because I don't. I just know that God's word is true. He says, let God be true to every man a liar. I'm going to trust him more than I trust anyone else. Right? Because he's constant. He's faithful. He's sure. Not about you, but we have to be honest with ourselves sometimes. The devils believe and tremble. Just saying I believe is not going to change anything. He says there has to be repentance. There has to be faith in Christ. There has to be obedience. There's commitment. And when you put it all together, it begins to make sense that God wants my full devotion. And if I'm not giving it to Him, I have to question. Am I truly His? If I don't have joy in God despite all the struggles, I have to question. Because He is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. Didn't say that we're going to be trouble. I, I've said this before. I hate that song that the cathedral sang back in the 70s. Sunshine and roses. Really? I found Christ and now it's all sunshine and roses. I don't know about you, but it is not sunshine and roses for me. Good night. Whoever wrote that song that wasn't thinking straight. They're a couple of fries short of a happy meal. But uh, I don't know about you, but life is a struggle. But there's joy in the journey. Amen? Do you know Him? Have you been biblically converted? Do you find your joy in Him? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank You for this day. Thank You for another Lord, day that we can come and worship You and praise You and find our joy in You, Lord. God, I thank You for who You are. For loving me, a sinner, enough to send Jesus Christ to die on the cross. Lord, I know I'm not worthy. I'm undeserving of it. But Lord, I also know we've been made worthy because of the cross. I ask God that you would speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, might we be honest about our walk with you, Lord? If we have one, if we don't have one, I pray you'd help us to be truly honest about that. Because Lord, we can't hide it from you. We can't miss it. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction upon those who do not yet know. Lord, may your Holy Spirit draw them to yourself. Lord, for those of us who truly do know you, who have a walk with you, God, that our life, Lord, that our life would give credence to, to the fact of what we say is in our heart is really true. So God, would you work in our hearts to not only challenge us, but Lord, change us.